It's Thursday, September 4th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, joining me in the studio today from Motley Fool Funds. Mr. Tim Hansen, good to see you. Nice to be back. It's been a while. It has been a little while. We took a little time off. You, yeah, everybody, well earned. Well earned, <laughs> exactly. But it's September now, and we're back we're at back. it. Back, and uh, we will talk about some of your recent travels. Not all, because you've you've actually done a decent amount of traveling. Um, but let's start with Yum Brands, which, for those who don't know, this is the parent company of Taco Bell, Pizza Hut, KFC. Little little sheep, <sighs> little sheep. People may not be aware. Little sheep hot pot. W- explain little sheep for folks. It's a uh, a Chinese restaurant chain where you you go and there's a table, and in the middle of the table is a very hot. It's kind of like fondue in some ways. It's a very hot liquid, and then they bring you raw meat and you boil the raw meat and the liquid and then eat it. Are there sauces? Are there yeah, seasoning? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. There, there are sauces. Because just uh, boiled there's, meat. There's vegetable options. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Yum Brands owns all of those, and in a story that sounds like we could have done a year ago, same store sales in China for their latest quarter down thirteen percent. They're working off of a low comp because it's what is going on in China. With this company, because it is, we are we are deep into year two. I think three. Oh, is it three? I think it, I think started well, I think to go downhill in 2012. Right, but it was the very end. The very end of 2012. So we're coming yeah. up on year three yeah. of problems with meat in China and plummeting sales. Yeah, they're lapping a negative 11 percent decline last year. So this is this is pretty grim in Q3, and and I think it comes. Uh, People were expecting this because the food, the latest food scandal, which broke at the end of July, caused the stock to drop from, I think, f- about fifteen percent from about eighty down to down to seventy, and it was because one of their suppliers um, was found to have been adding back expired and rotting meat into th- in the chicken, adding the bat chicken back into the the okay chicken. And then making the nuggets and things so that they got you know more yield. Uh, they made they stretched the good meat farther. Um, that's not allowed. And uh, yum, apparently. So this is this follows on. There was a there was a poultry incident two years ago. Then they had a, another supplier issue last year and a supplier issue this year. And the mar- the stock continues to trade at ten to fourteen times EBITDA, which is kind of expensive um, given their emerging market's growth potential and the market. Seems to always give them a pass for having these one-time issues, but at some point, if you've had a supplier issue, a one-time supplier issue in each of the last three years, I I think you need to start seriously reconsidering your use of the phrase "one time," <laughs> and uh, because it's, um, that means you have a structural problem. You're not. I was just going to say it also means you, you need to reconsider whoever is picking the suppliers. Yeah, and well, picking them and then checking up on them. I mean. You've got at the end of the day, your supplier obviously has business risk, but they don't have brand risk. I mean, that blows up. You know, there are problems, but they can go start another. Probably, maybe go get another job. If KFC becomes known as the people who are peddling rotten chicken, that's kind of game over. You know, I mean, and they said this happened broke at the end of July. Their quarter ends at the end of August, so the quarter is is over. Um, so they had, you know, in a let's call it a twelve-week quarter, they had five weeks of of effect from the the scandal, right? 
and they're going negative 13. And let's say that in those previous um, seven weeks, they were comping at plus 15, which is where they'd sort of been in the first half of the year when there was no ostensible scandal. In order to go from plus 15 to negative 13 over, you know, a five-week period, their sales must have dropped, you know, like 25, 30% over that scandal period in order to make that math work out. I mean, that that's that's really bad, again. And, and I don't know, they're losing brand equity, it seems like to me, in China. And we talk all the time about companies and the opportunity in China that it represents for any country that is either just starting business or is already there. But in the case of KFC, or I should say Yum Brands, you look at more than half their sales for the entire company come from China. Mm-hmm. 40% of their operating profits come mm-hmm. from China. Why do you think they're getting a pass? Is it just because the opportunity for expansion in China is so great? You know, I think because because if you look at a, a chart for today, mm-hmm. right at the opening, the stock dropped not dramatically, maybe mm-hmm. like three percent or something like that, and then very quickly recovered to the point where it is sort of midday. It's basically where the market is. So it's yeah, the, like I said, the market is shrugging. Obviously, it dropped when the scandal originally broke. This is just confirmation that the effect was bad. Um, you know, why do they get a pass? I think there's some disconnect between people who are investing in it in the United States and people who see what's actually going on in China. Uh, I mean, China's a very competitive environment. You know, Yum is definitely not, you know, it's, you know, I would say, you know, Yum is, their concepts here are fast food. You'd say it's probably, you know, Taco Bell, Pizza Hut, KFC, probably among the cheaper options out there. Whereas in, in China, they're not. They're, they're mid, you know, mid-ish. Um, you know, there's. It's a different experience. It's a different it's a, experience. It's a more place, sit down. It's a place you go on a date. Yep. And so, you know, and, and the thing is, I mean, the reason, and this is what I think is dangerous for the company, is that the reason Chinese eaters, diners, were going to Yum and KFC was because they liked the food and because they perceived that the brand guaranteed quality and safety. And now for three years, they've been undermining that. And so, what what do you compete on then in the what is your differentiator in that market? And if you don't have a differentiator, then you lose pricing power. You know, they had incredible operating margins in China, approaching twenty percent when they were going gangbusters. You know, that probably, in my opinion, is going to be permanently impaired because they simply won't be able to get back that price that pricing power in the market, given that there are questions about you know who their suppliers are and 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 whatnot. So. You know, I don't know why they're getting a pass. I think it might be because people want to be invested in, in the Chinese growth story, and, and there are a lot of people who are really uncomfortable with investing in Chinese companies directly, and so Yum is kind of the least worst option. Um, but they're having the same problems that these Chinese companies are having, and so I would treat them with the same sort of kid gloves in terms of you know what risk premium do you demand to own the shares? This is a, a company whose growth is predicated on China, and that also seems to carry the same risks as Chinese stocks. So you should be valuing them and demanding the same return, seemingly. But I think you know because it's a U.S.-based company, people maybe only require eight, nine, ten percent return there. Whereas with a domestic Chinese restaurant, you might demand fifteen, sixteen percent, and that's what causes the valuation gap to take place. Let's talk about a couple of things you've written recently for Motley Fool Funds. Um, and I, I I love this one in particular because 
You know, there are headlines that just sort of draw you in to read something. And in this case, it's something you wrote, the headline of which is, you can't make up your own metrics. <laughs> and I think it's because I, I know you so well that when I saw that headline, I immediately heard your voice, like, sort of imagine you throwing up your hands. <laughs> you can't make up your own metrics. You can't do that. You can't do that. But, to your, but, but one of the points you make right out of the gate is there have been times in the past when people have maybe not necessarily made up their their own metrics in the in the way that we'll get into but in new ways that actually make sense and one that I was unaware of which an example of that is EBITDA. Yeah, this is this comes from the book um The Outsiders which is is a worthwhile book for people to read uh, about some some very remarkable CEOs in terms of the value they created for shareholders. John Malone uh acquired a bunch of companies and you know for a variety of reasons in the industry he was in net income was not doing was not showing the true profitability of the business and obviously and there are a lot of problems with gap you know income sheet metrics um, which is why people do use things like EBITDA and free cash flow and structural free cash flow I mean those aren't some of those are they're not quite made up metrics they're they're innovations on classical metrics <laughs> um, where you add back things take them off but you know I think the point I made in there is that we've probably peaked in terms of financial innovation <laughs> on metrics and so if you're continuing to make up new ones you know you, the the uh, incremental return on on the value you're providing by making up a, a new metric um, probably isn't isn't quite the same as John Malone got by telling people about EBITDA. So the recent example of Arcos Dorados taking EBITDA and adding organic adjusted organic adjusted EBITDA, which I was unable to really back into what exactly that meant. It it involved. Um, so, you know, they, they have a well, – this is a Latin American McDonald's franchisee. They have a large business in Venezuela, which people may be aware has experienced several devaluations. And, yeah, not just one. Yeah, and has several different exchange rates by which you can measure your, your business. And, and um, this has been a problem for Arcos Dorados and others. And, you know, but they were not necessarily fully transparent about it uh, leading up to this problem, which is why they all of a sudden had to make an organic adjusted EBITDA metric because as the Bolivar devaluated, they stuck with the official exchange rate, even though it was like two to one, even though the black market rate was like, you know, 13 to one in country. And if you actually wanted to get money out of the country, at one point it was like 60 to one. <laughs> so finally, they've all they've all gone to what is like the SICAD2 rate um, and Mercado Libre and Arcostratos and others have, are being forced to report now at these lower um Exchange rates, which affect profitability, obviously, because you're taking a huge currency loss. Now, that's not necessarily operational, which is why I think they feel justified about adjusting for it. But they weren't adjusting for it before, right? Right? When it helped them, don't they didn't bother creating the metric. Um, they, you know, Mercado Libre notably told people on a conference call, "Look, the exchange rate is out there. If you want to do it, you can go do your own work." But then when it behooves them to do it themselves, they do it themselves. So. Yeah. Um, but when it's working against them, it's like, hey, if you just back out Venezuela, back that out. Don't look at that. We're fine. Well, and the thing is, you know, and if it were natural currency fluctuations, um, you know, or something were range bound, and it moved, like the Indonesian rupiah is moving between nine and thirteen thousand, and th that does create drags and benefits, and people back that out. But you have to back it out both when it helps you and when it hurts you. And there are companies who do do that. You know, they make sure they adjust for currency all the time, which is admirable. Um, but the, in the case of the Venezuelan Boulevard, it's not coming back. <laughs> You know, for a very long time, this is the new, you know, if you thought you were making $20 million in Venezuela, you are now making $3 million. 
And the odds of you getting back to 20 on the currency are basically zero. So that is a permanent impairment, I think, in the currency value. And so it's, I think, a little bit dishonest for these, these companies, in this case, to be adjusting for it. I think the last time you were here, we talked about uh, go somewhere month or go anywhere month. Basically, uh, uh, we rebranded that to embedded R and D month. Uh, embedded R and D. Yes, That's right. You. Because go anywhere month just sounded like you guys it sounded a, flippant. It flippant. And it, was, and it wasn't a flippant. You had a blank check flippant. to just go anywhere. And in fact, you guys were doing research. Uh, you went to Germany. You went to Georgia. Uh huh. Poland. Uh, Poland. Um, but prior to that, and this is something you had read, written up. Um, You've gone to Oregon. Mm-hmm. Um, what takes you to Oregon? What, what, like, why Oregon? Well, so um, the piece talks about, you know, one of the things that we say in, in, our, in our asset management on our research team is that, you know, the best idea that you have is probably a, an old idea um, because in the, in the largest positions that we have in our funds aren't necessarily our best ideas in terms of where they might rank in terms of risk reward or what we think the fair value is and what the current price is. But legitimately, it honestly breaks down to like what companies do we know best and who have we known the longest? And because your confidence in your analytical work improves over time, obviously, and you get to know more and more about a company. And so the odds of you being totally wrong, I think, probably go down a little bit over time. And when you've known a company for 15 years, you've got all that history with them. And so Particularly when it relates to management. Yeah, absolutely. You know when people are credible. You know if things are. You know when they say something cyclical or seasonal. You can. You know if that's true or not. You know what challenges have been in the past. What opportunities are, and so on and so forth. Um, if they're just going to randomly back out Venezuela. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is. You know, we like to find things that that we get to know well over time, and ideas that that are the same basically. And so we we've been um, plugging this uh, small bank thesis for for many years uh, now um, on the idea that if we can find small banks with very low-cost loyal deposit franchises who have low loan-to-deposit ratios in a rising interest rate environment, um, their their assets, the yields they're getting on their assets, will reprice faster than their liabilities, and therefore they will become more and more profitable. And so one bank that we found that that has been successfully executing on this was a bank on East End Long Island called Suffolk uh, National Bank Corp., and they, you know, the big innovation that they had was to start making loan production offices closer into New York City where there was more loan demand and they could leverage their pricing advantage because of the low-cost deposit base. So we were looking, for, looking around for other banks. We found this bank in Oregon that basically was going to do the same thing. Um, they had a very low-cost deposit franchise. They were talking about opening loan production offices. So it was about, they were about 18 months behind Suffolk Bank in terms of executing on the plan. And so we said, hey, if they're gonna, this plan works. We've seen it work in a couple of places. Let's go out and check it out and see if, uh, if they've got what it takes to make it work in Oregon. And this is, this is a company called Cascade Bank. And yeah, it looked, it looked pretty good. But that's, that's what took us out there, just to sort of put boots on the ground and figure out if, if, what, you know, if, if, if their plan had credibility in the same way the Suffolk Bank Corp's plan had credibility. And uh, you know, obviously, time will tell. But you know, if, they can, if they can take these very low-cost deposits, I think they're playing t- paying 12 or 13 basis points at this point, which is basically zero, and they can start making loans in Portland, Seattle, Sacramento, um, where demand is going to be higher than it is in Bend, Oregon, which is where, where they're headquartered. They should be incrementally, significantly more profitable, um, and that would, be, that would be a happy thing. Let me go out on a limb and guess that there probably aren't a ton of Wall Street analysts Knocking on the door of Cascade Bank Corp, you know, making the trip to Bend, Oregon, and, and, and no, I don't, I don't think so. 
Um, they that- were going to have an investor day in September in Portland, and they invited me to come to that. And I said, you know what? I'd rather come to Bend, see the home market, see you guys on your home turf. Um, so I think they are. You know, they they just did a, a merger. Was this yet another example of you calling up a, a, a publicly traded company, and they're like, "Wow, we, we you're an analyst. We we never hear from you guys." Yes, yeah. <laughs> you know, they were and they were lovely, very That's hospitable. Great. You love yeah, that. I love that. I love to I love to do that. And Bend, Oregon, is a, a truly. I don't know if it's a hidden gem because I think there are people who know about it. But, but what a lovely place to. Consider a vacation. What am I doing in Bend, Oregon, if I go there? Uh, well, there's there's um, obviously the mountains. So you've got the hiking. You've got the uh, – there's, there's swimming. Um, there's a little bit of a rodeo thing going on. There is an incredibly nice microbrewery culture. So if you're into the, if you're into the beer, there, I think there are nine breweries in Bend alone. And when you really? get there, the hotel gave me this map, and you, you can do a walking trail of all the breweries. And so it takes like an hour and a half, and you can hit nine breweries at once. And, and I think the most famous is um, Deschutes. Okay. is the most well-known of the, of the nine. Nine may not be the right number, but it's a, it was a robust number given the size of the town. I'm going to need to eat at some point. So, yeah, well, they've all got their brew pubs. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think I had a bison burger at one of them, which was tasty. Um, but, yeah, I think, I think you go out, you exercise, maybe do some rafting, some paddling. Uh, go for a trail run, a little hiking, and then go go sit, clean up, and clean then... up, sit by the river, have a have a brew. <sighs> Going to go book my flight now. <laughs> uh, you can read all of this and more from Tim Hanson and his colleagues. Uh, just go to foolfunds.com, sign up for declarations. It's the free monthly newsletter that those guys produce. Foolfunds.com. Thanks for being here. Hey, my pleasure, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday.